So this morning, sinner, come and receive the forgiveness, the freedom, and the hope this morning that's found through the cleansing power of Christ's blood. This morning, leave that sin uh, in the past. Maybe you're a Christian and you've been walking in unrepentant sin. Maybe it's sexual sin. Maybe it's some of these things we talked about. Or maybe any sin as a practice apart from repentance. I admonish you today to reckon the old man dead and to put your sin to death. Listening to a special message preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, or to learn more about Jesus, visit thisisshoreline.com. Let's open our Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. Wait, not Romans? Uh, today we are stepping away from our normal exposition of the book of Romans, but we will be covering a few verses uh, in Romans a little bit later this morning. But today's a special Sunday where we're joining, as Pastor Micah said during our time of singing, that we're joining with um, hundreds of churches around North America and even around the world, thousands, uh, to take a stand for biblical sexual morality. If you've not heard yet, in Canada, there's a bill known as C-4, C-4. And it passed through the House and the Senate with literally no opposition, not a single dissenting vote. And this bill received what's known as royal assent on December 8th, which means it went into legal law on January 8th, just last weekend. This bill in Canada amends the criminal code to ban what is known as conversion therapy. I don't know if you've heard of conversion therapy. Uh, but here's what it says in the preamble of that bill. It says that anyone who believes that heterosexuality Cisgender gender identity, gender expression is conformed to a sex assigned at birth, and that's to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, gender expressions. Those beliefs are now myth. So according to Canadian law, what we believe in, as far as what the scripture says about God's design for marriage and sexuality legally is now a myth. Um, but conversion therapy, if you've heard of it, it's not only gaining traction in Canada or has now uh, been put into law, uh, but it is something that's been going around different states who have been entertaining this idea. But the, the definition officially is, and this is an incredibly long definition, so buckle up. It's known as a practice, treatment, or service designed to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual, or to change a person's gender identity to cisgender, to change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned at birth or to repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior, or to repress a person's non-cisgender gender identity, or to repress or reduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned to the person at birth. Whew, did that clarify it for you? <laughs> That's a broad, very broad definition. And it's intentionally broad so that it can be used against any preacher, against any elder, against any Christian, and specifically against any counselor who uh, not only speaks against homosexuality or transgenderism, but who also speaks for what the scripture says. So literally in Canada today, it is an indictable offense to uh, liable to imprisonment if pastors get up and preach and teach or counsel or even read the very words we're about to study together. Now, someone here might be thinking, big deal. That's Canada. Let the Canucks deal with it. That doesn't affect us down here in uh, the States. First of all, that's a terrible attitude. <laughs> uh, that's an unbiblical attitude. We are supposed to stand alongside our brothers and sisters who are facing persecution around the world. They're suffering, and so we, alongside them, bear that suffering. We weep with them, we mourn with them, and we pray for them. I did have an opportunity to, to text and FaceTime two of my Canadian pastor friends, both of which said, thank you for praying. Thank you for standing with us. This is a major issue, and we're surprised it passed so quickly and so easily through government. So that's the first thing. But secondly, I would encourage you to Google the state of Indiana, where in Indiana, literally the exact same mimicked legislation is on the table 
and up for grabs, and over 14 states are also considering banning conversion therapy, meaning we look at the gospel that transforms sinners to saints. And if we are to teach that, to share that, to counsel someone in that, we are now, at least in Canada, threatened with punishment. So today is a day where churches and pastors are taking a stand, and we want to do that with them. And so will you stand with me this morning as we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 9. We don't stand often enough for the reading of God's word, but let's read it together. Paul says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Sovereign God, we worship you. And we acknowledge that you know all those who suffer in and for your name. We remember this morning those who have been imprisoned for their faith. And we pray that they, like the Apostle Paul, would see that even though they remain captive, their chains are furthering the gospel, not frustrating it. May they inspire and embolden their fellow believers to speak the word of God more courageously, more fearlessly. Oh, God of all comfort, this morning we pray for those who are being tortured in body and mind. We pray that you'd give them the grace to endure and to see their suffering as part of following in your footsteps. Merciful God, we ask for those who have paid the ultimate price that those around them who've been, who see their martyrdom for your love, Lord, that they around them would know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. We pray that their example would embolden those fellow believers among them. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would make us mindful of our brothers and sisters who it just seems like so much space between where we're at today and those even in Canada who are being persecuted for their faith. And Lord, we ask that you would help us stand with those suffering who are suffering in your name. Teach us what it means to overcome by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. And we pray that we, like them, would not love our lives so much as to shrink from death. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask now that you would teach us, that you would instruct us, that you would encourage us, convict us, and that you would strengthen our hearts through the proclamation of your eternal word. May this time, may your word bear fruit in our lives for your glory and for our community's good. Lord, we ask these things and that you would hear our prayer because of Christ. And it's in his name that we all say together, amen. 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 Go ahead and have a seat. Read this week about a man who went to a cathedral and he desired to worship at a certain shrine. But when he arrived there, there was a sign hanging from the neck of the idol, and the sign read this, do not worship here, for this shrine is out of order. <laughs> you see, Christians, as we've been learning in Romans, we are people of the day. We are people of the light. And that means, like Jesus said, you're the light of the world. We dwell among a people, among a community of darkness, a community where people are bowing down at the idols of sexual expression and gender fluidity and immorality. And as we begin this morning, I want to admonish us with the same words that were hanging from that idol's neck. And that is, do not worship there, for that shrine is out of order. The world's system is out of order for a variety of reasons. In the context of gender identity, today the world considers gender and sex to be completely distinct from one another, so that gender is something fluid. And so we don't use this phrase a lot, but a few years ago, the term was gender dysphoria. If you are suffering from that, you can simply elect to change your gender from male to female. And people today are asking you on social media uh, or politically to respect my pronouns, respect my he, him pronouns, or my she, her pronouns. 
Uh, recently, even singers are getting in on it, celebrities. Re, uh, Demi Lovato recently updated her pronouns from she, her to they, them. And the grammar nerd in me cringes when I see a singular person referred to as they. Uh, you may have seen that movie Inception, and the actress Ellen Page was in the movie Inception. She was Leonardo's assistant. She was the new architect who created the, the dream world. Uh, actress Ellen Page underwent surgery and is now Elliot Page, and the world celebrates this. In fact, the term cisgender, which is how Christians would be uh, described, meaning you still identify with the sex that you were assigned at birth, Cisgender is just a, a, one of many, a plethora, if you would, of gender options. You've heard of transgender, but have you heard of agender, bigender, genderqueer, intersex, pangender, transgender male, which is different than transgender man, transmasculine, and two-spirit. As of uh, this morning, 2022, if you're listening to this sermon in five years from now, as of today, uh, we have about 58 different gender options. So the world is worshiping at an out-of-order shrine in regards to gender identity. When we look at sexual expression, today the world is tolerant of every sort of sexual practice except for celibate, repressive, committed marriage. How terrible a thing is that? In fact, a generation ago, the Kinsey Report marginalized, or I'm sorry, normalized sexual promiscuity. And Hugh Hefner helped promote pornography to the mainstream. In fact, in the U.S. alone, porn revenues exceed the revenues of pro football, pro basketball, and pro baseball combined. We look at those, those athletes and we go, how can he be asking for so much money in his contract? And yet not only his team, his entire industry, all the industries of pro sports put together are eclipsed by pornography uh, revenue. Every second, 30,000 internet users are viewing pornography and sex continues to be the most searched for word on every search engine. Well, in regards to immorality, 5.6% of Americans would identify as part of the LGBTQ plus community. We know every June is now dubbed Pride Month and businesses who don't show their support for the gay and lesbian community are put on watch. They're put on notice. In fact, in 2019, someone researched which companies are writing articles that mention the word pride in and around June. And the top five companies include Apple, where I used to work, 61 mentions, and then followed by Netflix, Disney, and Nike. Even Procter & Gamble jumped on the virtue signal bandwagon, but I'm not really sure how toothpaste or Tide detergent have much to do with someone's sexuality, but they mention pride. So rather than approaching this topic with brokenness over sexual preference or sinful temptation, many from the community of LGBTQ plus have sought to make their sexuality their primary identity and to exhibit pride publicly and without guilt or shame. And I would say pride really is a fitting term. Now, up until this point in the sermon, many of us as Christians are, yes, amen, everything that's been said, and yet some of us may continue to entertain devious, adulterous thoughts, which Jesus said is a violation of the seventh commandment. Well, we're very passionate about speaking and denouncing, speaking against the sex-saturated culture out there, and yet right here within our own minds, there's addiction to pornography. Right here, there are singles who are saying, I'm a Christian, yet they're living in sexual immorality with their boyfriend, with their girlfriend. And as I said in first service, they need to man up, shut up, and zip up. And so this topic of sexual, of sexual morality is not just something that, hey, it's out there, it's not really relevant. This is something that affects all of us. It affects the world, it affects the church. And so the world keeps saying, worship here, worship here. And I want to just admonish us this morning, the shrine is out of order. And so to understand what it means to have biblical sexual morality, we first have to look at what is immorality. You know, Isaiah 5.20 indicts the day we live in. He says, Woe to those who call evil good and who call good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We live in a day where you and I are considered immoral. You and I are considered 
on the low end of the moral spectrum, that we are filled with hate, we're filled with bigotry, we approach this world, and because we don't check the boxes and say yes and, and amen, I affirm everything you're doing, that we are the ones in the wrong, that we have the moral low ground. This world has it completely backwards, just as Isaiah predicted. And in the verses right before us, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 6, makes a series of incredible statements to a confused Corinthian church. Remember, the letter of 1 Corinthians was written almost as a Q&A, a question and answer response. There was a church completely confused about some key things. And so they wrote Paul asking a series of questions. And 1 Corinthians, in many ways, is his answer letter. He says, hey, and what you wrote about, here's what I would say to you. And as a church, they were allowing all sort of sin in the camp. They were suing other believers. They were getting drunk on the communion wine. Can you imagine that? As the elements are passed around, they just give me the wine one more time. They're getting drunk at communion. Not only that, but they were selfishly and unlovingly partaking in the broader Lord's Supper, the, the table of the Lord, without regarding other church members. They were forming factions and cliques. Well, I'm of Apollos. I'm of Paul. And they began to get divisive with each other. And they even took spiritual gifts and abused them in their gatherings. How did that happen? Well, the city that they lived in, the city of Corinth, was in its day what we would say Las Vegas is for our day. What's the phrase? What happens in Vegas? What? I'm sad we know that. Because <laughs> it's not true, is it? Well, I just went and I so, you know, I just, I went away for the weekend. And uh, what happened there, stay there. No, it didn't. That STD followed you, man. Like, that sin followed you. The, the, the sin that we commit always finds us out and it takes us deeper and further than we ever intended. So Corinth was a stopping point for trade vessels. You would, you would offload the boats. There was this small little narrow passage of land. You'd offload all the boats and you would wait the day or two, three that it would take to get down to the next water point. And so as you're waiting, let's carouse, let's peruse, let's see what happens in the city. And so the temple of Aphrodite in the city of Corinth boasted over 1,000 prostitutes to dedicate your worship to the false goddess of love. In fact, female prostitutes around Greece were called Corinthian girls. Why? Because of the lewdness of the city of Corinth. We, we can't forget, right, that the church is like a boat and the world is like the ocean. We want to be in the ocean. We don't want to be a, a boat that's off on land, on dry ground, and totally irrelevant, completely isolated in a little, uh, a little community of, mon of monastery where we never affect the world. We want to be in the water. We want to be engaging the world. We want to be the light of the world. But, but we, if we're the boat and the, the world is the water, we want the boat in the water, not the water in the boat. And see, that's what had happened in Corinth. The church had allowed the Corinthian cultural mindset to infiltrate, to flood the church so that they became ineffective in the world. Even as they flaunted their freedom, they said, hey, we're open and affirming. And yet they had gone so far in their worldly thinking that they believed it was good that a man in their congregation was living in sexual immorality openly with his father's wife. And so Paul lays out in 1 Corinthians 5, that man is not to continue in his sin, he's to repent. That you as a church should be grieving this, not celebrating this, and instead of allowing this man to just continue on in the church and welcoming him that Sunday morning, you need to enact church discipline, which we don't talk about enough. So Paul's question in verse 9 is how he begins this. He says, do you not know? And the implied answer is, you should know. What he's saying is, you guys are ignorant. In fact, he uses this word, this phrase six times in this chapter. Do you not know? The implied idea is that they did know better, but that they were double-minded and not thinking with the mind of Christ, but thinking with the mind of the flesh. Notice verse nine with me. Paul says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The unrighteous, those who are in Adam, he says, are walking in darkness. They are separated from the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said it this way in John 3:36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You in your natural state, born of your mother's womb in this world, 
The scripture declares that the wrath of God, or in addition to that, the curse of sin, the darkness, the despair, the eternal condemnation and eternal separation from a holy, glorious, almighty, sovereign God that rests upon you. If you come from the line of Adam, if you're in Adam, then the wrath of God remains on you. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. No, all dogs don't go to heaven. And no, not all people born just by default go to heaven. You see, in America, we have a thing called justification by death. So the idea is, well, grandma's in heaven. How do you know? Well, because she died. If you go to he- the reason you go to heaven is because you have to first die instead of justification by faith. And so the uh, scripture is clear. We must be born again. We must be brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. We must be made righteous. In our natural state, we're unrighteous. Only the righteous will inherit the kingdom of God. This week I told someone, just because you're standing in a garage doesn't mean you're a car. And just because you're in a donut shop doesn't make you a pilgrim, okay, or, or a policeman. <laughs> no, it makes you a person of smart choices. But uh, being in a church doesn't make you a Christian. And so let me speak to the unsaved Christian. The Christian who has been coming to church and just by default, I'm going to heaven. No, the scripture is clear. The unrighteous do not inherit the kingdom. You must be made righteous. You must be declared righteous by faith in Christ. So today, it's not enough that you just came to church or have been coming or you were raised in a certain way. No, today is the day of salvation. You must turn from your sin and full, full on headlong lay your life upon Christ and his finished work. Amen. So Paul says, don't you know? But who's Paul writing to? In fact, we have the answer to that in the second verse of 1 Corinthians 1 on the screen. He says he's writing this to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together. Oh, here's a broader group with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So do you see what he's saying? He's speaking to the sanctified, the church, those who are the righteous, who will inherit the kingdom. But he's also by proxy speaking to us. We're someone who's calling on the name of the Lord in every place. So what he's saying is to them and to us, don't be ignorant. You should know better. In fact, what he's saying is we have an obligation as the church of Jesus Christ to protect and defend an advanced Christ's kingdom. I'll say it this way. The church is known as the ecclesia in the Greek, the, the, uh, the called out ones, the, the assembly. The church is the ecclesia. We are the visible embassy of the kingdom, the basileia. The ecclesia is the visible representation and embassy of the, king, the kingdom, the basileia. So when a church allows unrighteous sin to persist among the members without checking it, without rebuking it, or gives a stamp of approval on that which God forbids, that church is misrepresenting God. She's misrepresenting his nature, his word, and his kingdom. And so if the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, how can you allow someone in the church to continue without uh, stopping it, without uh, confronting it? In fact, the scholar named Pryor said, our inheritance is incorruptible or imperishable, undefiled and unfading. There's nothing inherently corrupt or corrupting in the kingdom of God nor will anything of that nature be allowed to enter it. The two cannot mix. The unrighteous cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because God is altogether righteous. And he goes on to say, because God's kingdom reflects his own character of righteousness and compassion, those who insist on living by different standards will exclude themselves. So Paul's not talking about isolated acts of unrighteousness, but about a whole way of life pursued persistently by those who thus indicate that they would be aliens in the kingdom of truth and light. So Paul is correcting their duplicitous perspective when he says in the next line, do not be deceived. Christian, don't be deceived. Don't let your minds wander you off into the minefield of deceptive thought or deceptive actions. To the Corinthians, it might look like this. Guys, you're taking yourself as Christians before a pagan magistrate, a judge, and you're suing each other. Like, what are you doing? Don't you know that that's, that's completely wrong? Or do you not know that you're celebrating fornication that the world even looks at and is disgusted by? You need to rebuke it, not celebrate it. And so Paul says, 
the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Who does he mean by the unrighteous? Well, some of you were worried we're going to go through this, but we are. Let's look at it. Look at verse 9 and 10. Here it is. Neither, and this is not exhaustive, okay? This is representative, but he says, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I just want to make sure you understand this. Let's be on the same page here. He's not saying a Christian will never sin. So what he does not mean is if you've ever done something on this list, you're going straight to hell and there is nothing that you can do. You're just, that's your destiny. That's not what he's saying. If that's the criteria, I'm sunk. I'm done. And so are you. The scripture says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So all in Adam are sinners. We've all sinned. And so if you were a Christian who happened to be greedy once, or sadly you fell into temptation, into sexual sin, he's not saying if that happened to you once that you're just, you're going to hell. What he does mean is that those who practice these things without repentance, you cannot rightly call yourself a Christian. Why? Because as Christians, we grieve over our sin. We mortify our sin. We hate our sin. As Jesus said in the Beatitudes, we, we mourn over it. We, we see the wretched man that we are. And we say, oh God, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We have a brokenness over it. We don't persist in, it un, in an unrepentant way like, yeah, I actually like my sin. I love my sin. I'm just going to persist in it. If that's you, if you've walked in a, a habitual, unrepentant way, you've never felt mortification or brokenness over your sin, I hate to say this, but you may not be a Christian. You, you must repent and you must believe. In fact, there's a similar list to this in Galatians 5. And this should make the hair on our neck stand up a little when Paul says the works of the flesh are evident. They're, they're, they're easy to see. There's evidence there. And here it is. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. And then he says, and things like these. In case you're wondering, what about that? Yes, that too. Things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, this is something that must be warned often to the church, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So that list and this list here in 1 Corinthians 6, again, they're not exhaustive, but lest anyone accuse me of getting on some high horse or some one-string guitar, or I'm, I'm up here on a platform, a soapbox. No, I mean, these lists are not all sexual, are they? There's a lot of things on this list more than homosexuality. These, these sins mark the unrighteous. They mark unbelievers. You as a believer can and do sin, but we repent. We don't walk in this behavior as a practice or pattern. So let's go through each one of these sins in 1 Corinthians 6. Notice in verse 9, he says neither. And then in the Greek, it's neither, nor, nor, nor. And so first he says neither the sexually immoral. Another word is fornicator. This is the Greek word, porneia. I've used that word before. You should recognize that word. It's where pornography comes from. One commentator said that was the besetting sin in the city of Corinth. So any, we would just define it this way, any sex outside of the marriage bed is sexual immorality. If you're like, well, what about that? Yes, that is sexual immorality. Anything outside of the marriage bed. That's a broad brush, isn't it? That's, that's a good one to start with. That covers a lot of ground. But then he says, nor, secondly, idolaters, or literally a worshiper of images. Remember, the Greco-Romans were polytheists. They believed in and worshiped a plethora of false gods. And often to assist you in the worship of these gods or goddesses, the temples would employ these female or male prostitutes to help you engage in illicit, ritualistic sexual acts to honor their despicable deity. We may not see that in the world today as much, but we would say idolatry is the worship or veneration of anything ultimate which is not or which replaces the one true God. That is idolatry. In fact, one Indian man came here to visit from India, and when he went home, they said, how was your trip to the United States of America? And he said, I was very troubled by all the amount of idols that I observed in America. So someone from India, where there are idols everywhere, and yet he said that was his perspective of America. Well, then he goes on, he says, nor adulterers. 
Adultery is simply being unfaithful to your spouse. Now, figuratively, this word, uh, we zoom it out and look spiritually. The idea of someone faithless towards God is a spiritual adulterer. We look in Hosea, and God says, hey, Hosea, take the, the hand of a prostitute and marry the prostitute. That's a picture of Israel's whoredom, Israel's unfaithfulness spiritually to God. And so adultery is not just illicit forbidden sex, it is betrayal. And this is a pattern of someone um, who is unrighteous. Well, then he says, nor men who practice homosexuality. Now, we don't read it here in the ESV, but in the original Greek, there's actually two terms here. The terms are passive homosexual partners. He says, nor them. And then the second one is practicing uh, homosexuals. Now, what happens is that some have, there have been books written on this, some have taken to just ignore the Greek, dismiss the Greek, and say, all this is referring to is the male prostitutes we just mentioned in the temple. And so we're, we're, that used to be some of them were not to do that. And we don't have that today, so that's not a picture. Or they would say, this is referring to pederasty, which is where a grown man takes a boy to be his lover. They would say, uh, that's what it is. It's, it's one of those two things. And we don't have those today. Those are both like n- non-relevant or illegal. And so um, he's not speaking about two grown men who love one another and want to be committed in marriage. And that's acceptable and that's okay. And even some supposed Christians are writing these sorts of ideas. Um, but no, here in the Greek, it's referring to both the passive partner as well as the active partner. Now, in addition to this, there's a growing movement within Christianity that says, well, you can be same-sex attracted to someone, but as long as you don't act out your desires, you're still good. You're still like a Christian. And I would say, well, let's define act out your desires. What do you mean by that? If you're a man actively lusting after another man, then you need to repent, right? You're, you're actively lusting. That's a sin. If you're fantasizing and, and hanging on to that thought, that's a sin. Jesus said, looking lustfully, at a woman or a man, that's a sin. Um, And so if you're practicing the thought or the deed, you need to repent. So when Paul says men who practice homosexuality, he's referring to both the passive or the same-sex attracted as well as the active practice. And so all the ground is covered here. Uh, We can't say, well, it's fine. I'm just not going to act out my desires. I'll I'll just try my best to be celibate, but I'm still really struggling and lusting after people consistently. No, it's so important we learn the Bible's original languages and the author's intent so that we don't just read our own cultural flavor into the text or make the author say what we wish they would say. And so this covers all of that ground, an active, unrepentant lifestyle. Well, look at the rest of the list. You'll observe, again, this is not just about homosexuality or sex. Look at the next one. He says, nor thieves. The Greek is the word klepto. You've heard of that? Someone a kleptomaniac. It means to steal, but it doesn't mean as much as a violent robber at knife point, but more of the sort of theft that's done by fraud or done in secret. Uh, So theft was so rampant in the culture of this day that William Barclay said the ancient world was cursed with thieves, that they're everywhere, that Christianity... um, existed in the middle of a pilfering population. It's like everywhere you go, you were robbed. It's taking something which is not yours. And Paul says, this is what some of you were. You were thieves. Then he says, nor the greedy. Or literally, the word for greedy is covetous, one who's grasping, one who wants more and who's greedy for gain. I like what Moody said here. He said that the covetous are named between thieves and drunkards. And we lock up thieves, we have no mercy on thieves. We loathe drunkards, and we could consider them great sinners against the law of God as well as the law of the land. Yet there is far more said in the Bible against covetousness than against either stealing or drunkenness. Remember, Paul said, I didn't even know what coveting was till the law revealed it. And I realized I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm filled with covetousness. And we live in a culture today uh, that uh, promotes covetousness. In fact, that drives our commerce, especially around Christmas. Got to have the toys. Not the greedy. And then he says, nor drunkards. Nor drunkards. Now, this comes from a word which signifies just total unbridled, uncontrolled drinking. And uh, by the way, this was so common in Greece that the word we have for breakfast, it came from a Greek term that meant right after sunrise, you take bread, dip it in wine, and fill your stomach with that. Even children did that. 
So parents, you're wondering if that breakfast cereal is approved by moms. And here's bread being dipped in wine, and even the children were eating it. Uh, it was just such a custom of the day to be filled with wine, to be filled with drunkenness. And we know this from last week. Believers are not forbidden to drink, but we're forbidden to be intoxicated by any substance. But this marked the person's identity. They were drunkards. Well, notice he goes on, he says, nor revilers. This is someone who abuses someone else with their speech, someone who insults or reproaches or even blasphemes. This is tearing down someone's reputation behind their back with rumors or with lies. People marked by this behavior will be judged by their own words at the great white throne judgment. And Paul says they will not inherit the kingdom of God. You might say, well, I've, not, I've never committed sexual sin, but have you reviled? Well, then finally, he says the, the word swindlers. And this is the same word, the same root word where rapture comes from. The idea is to snatch out, to, to seize away, to catch away. And so you could say these are indirect thieves. They don't reach into your purse and take money out of it, but they scam you. They embezzle your money. They they promise a service, and then they don't provide it. So you're caught going, I thought I paid for this service or this product, and I was scammed. It was bogus. It was false advertising. Uh, And my money was snatched away. Those, Paul says at the end of this, in summary, he says, notice verse 10, these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, if we ended the sermon there this morning, what a depressing, dark, and despairing sermon. And yet, I draw your attention to the glory, the joy, and the wonder of verse 11. You see, verse 11 doesn't stand out as much until we see our own selves in the context of verses 9 and 10. Until we see the wrath of God abiding on us and realizing, I'm not going to inherit the kingdom. And yet, notice the rest of this verse, verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul says, look how close you were to not inheriting the kingdom. Such were some of you. So the Corinthian Christians would be sitting there in the gathering, listening to this letter being read, and they would hear in verses 9 and 10, neither the sexually immoral, and so on say, yep, that was me. They would hear, nor homosexuals, and they'd they'd say, yep, man, I once was lost. They would hear, nor drunkards, and they'd say, wow, look at how far the Spirit of God has changed me, has taken me. You see, church, this is a display of the power of the gospel. Barclay says the proof of Christianity lay in its power. It could take the dregs of humanity and make them into new people. It could take those lost to shame and make them children of God. There were in Corinth and all over the world men and women who were living proof of the recreating power of Christ. Consider those words, believer, for a minute. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Each of these Greek words are in the historical aorist tense. That speaks of a a point in time, a past completed moment in time. But notice it was not you washed yourself, you sanctified yourself, you justified, you did a great job getting out of that lifestyle and you pulled yourself up out of the muck and the mire. No, this is the divine passive voice. God, the Holy Spirit, he washed you. That speaks of regeneration, spiritual cleansing of sin and impurity through Christ's atoning blood. You were washed. You were sanctified. God carried out this action of sanctification, of consecrating you as his, of granting you positional holiness from the moment you were sinner converted to saint. You were sanctified. You were positionally holy before a holy God. And you were justified. God carried out this action of declaring the sinner righteous by faith alone in his son, Jesus Christ, the Lord. And this is all of God. God did the work from first to last. If he didn't, you would not inherit the kingdom. You would still be dead in your trespasses and sins. He says, such were some of you, but the triune God did a salvific, sovereign, and sanctifying work in your life. And that work in the past bears fruit in your behavior. So look at this again from the bottom up. Because you're in Christ now, not in Adam, look at it again. 
Because of that, you are no longer a swindler. You're now an honest man. You're no longer a reviler. Your speech is now building others up, not tearing them down. You're no longer a drunkard. No, you're temperate. You're self-controlled. You're no longer filled with greed. You're filled with gratitude. You're content. You're no longer a thief. You're not reaching into someone's pocket. You're finding ways to be generous and put money back into people's pocket. You're no longer one who practices homosexuality, whether in mind or in deed, but no, you honor the Lord with your body and your mind. You're no longer an adulterer. You now love your husband or wife solely, and the marriage bed is holy. You are no longer an idolater, but in Christ, you now worship the one true God, and you're no longer sexually immoral. Note, now, because you're in Christ, you walk in step with the Spirit, and you honor God through biblical sexual morality. See, that's the power of the gospel. Paul would say, such were some of you. And I would add to that, such were all of you. We were all dead in our sin, and yet Christ has done the work. You see, the world would seek to tweak the Greek, to change the meaning, to do some spiritual origami with this text and say, well, why do you guys emphasize that one little thing? Well, we're not. We're emphasizing all of it. The world would minimize it. They'd say, well, that's not behavior. That's identity. And yet what we have to do is not look at the general consensus of the world and say, whatever is most popular, whatever is most prevalent is right, is correct, is true. No, we have to go back to the original design. And see, I feel like we as a church, as believers, we're pummeled all day long with, well, that's what you think. That's your truth. And we're pummeled with this day after day, week after week. And it just can become wearying where we feel like, man, how do I stand against this tide? And yet, the way we do that is to go back to the original design. How did the designer intend for the creation to exist? What does the Bible say about marriage, identity, gender, and sexuality? And so to do that, uh, we need to go to the first page of the Bible. So open your Bibles or turn to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to go just into uh, a time of application, four points. But we have to go back to the original design. Open, as we open the first few uh, verses of our Bibles. Uh, I watched a debate this week or a, a Dr. Drew show where James, Dr. James White was on it. And it's an older clip, but um, Dr. Drew was having this episode about transgenderism. And um, one of the people in the audience suggested Dr. James White is filled with hate because he didn't agree with their lifestyle, which is how hate is now defined. If you don't agree, you're filled with hate. Uh, which is ridiculous. But the host, Dr. Drew, was trying to do everything he could to embarrass and demean Dr. White's biblical perspective. And one thing he asked is, does God really care? Does God care about our sexuality? Like, is it a big deal to him? As if God is just concerned with what we do Sunday, but Monday through Saturday, he could not even give, he just doesn't care. He doesn't have the slightest concern about how we root our identity or how we behave uh, and so Dr. White said, well, yes, God absolutely cares. And he was very gracious, very bold. And some in the audience, I think, were uh, more open to listening to what he had to say because it was reasoned and logical. But what we see in Scripture, this is my, my argument, we see that our gender, sexual identity, and sexual expression are rooted in God's design and creation as his image bearers. So look with me at Genesis 1. It says in 26... This is interrupting God's flow here. It's, then there was evening, there was morning, the next day. And God said, and God said, and God said. And he's creating as he speaks. But then we get to this verse, and there's a, there's a little bit of a selah. This is off the script. It says, on the sixth day, God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So there's a creation of man. Uh, there's uh, man's identity is rooted in the image of God. And there is this dominion mandate given to man to rule and subdue over creation. Well, then turn the page to Genesis 2. This seems to go back and fill in some of the details. Verse 18, 
The Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And then we see the story of what happens there. uh, And we notice that God doesn't speak Eve into existence like he does with all of creation. He didn't do that with Adam either. Adam was formed from the dust and Eve is formed from Adam's rib. Well, then verse 23, the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then Moses adds this to speak of the, this perpetual, uh, beautiful picture of marriage and this institution that's established there in Genesis. It continues in Moses' day as he writes in verse 24, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay? So we have a biblical basis for this. Then in Ephesians 5, New Testament, you can jot this verse down. In verse 32, Paul says, this mystery is profound. He speaks of these verses. And he says, I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. So I want you to jot these four points down as we consider these, these ideas of biblical morality from the scripture. Number one, our identity is rooted in the image of God, in the imago Dei. So because we are created in God's image, the Hebrew word there is selim. So remember the second commandment, you're not to make any image of God. Why? Well, because that's idolatry and because God has already stamped his image on mankind. We've been created in his image. And so we don't need to create some lesser image. We have the image of God. That's where human dignity, human worth, human rights come from. They don't come just because the government says you have human rights. No, it's rooted in the fact that we are created in God's image. That's why we don't take the life of another human because they are also an image bearer. And so I can't flip the script and just say, yeah, I don't identify anymore. You notice the word identify, identity. I can't identify as a woman and just switch it up. Why? Because my gender is actually rooted in who I am as an image bearer of God. And so, you know, the world would say, well, let's pick this one random idea where DNA has been marred by the effects of sin. And what about that one random, you know, case? And we'd say, that's a rabbit trail. Let's not talk about the exceptions. Let's talk about the rule. And the idea from scripture, it declares our identity is image bearer and God creates us male and female. So our personhood, not what we say we identify, uh, is rooted in who we are. And we're not the creator, we're the creature. And as the creature, we simply reflect God's image. In fact, I would commend to you Romans chapter one. Just go back and read Romans one. And it tells us there's three exchanges in Romans one. We've studied this before. But there is, first of all, a glory exchange. We say, I don't want to glorify God. So we exchange his glory for lesser things, for the image there of creation. Secondly, because we exchange a greater glory for a lesser glory, we then have a truth exchange. We suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness, and we now bow down and make sacrifices to things. Well, thirdly, whenever you have a glory and a truth exchange, you have a sex exchange. And that is where the women and men exchange natural relations for unnatural. And so once I worship something as God other than God, I now must offer my body to it and take what is natural and exchange it for what is deviant. I would say it this way, sexuality follows spirituality. And so we see that in Romans. We see these three exchanges. And so your identity as a Christian is that you've been redeemed. You've been renewed. And so I don't start a conversation, hi, I'm Pilgrim, I'm a heterosexual. I don't, because my identity is not that. I might say I'm a Christian or I'm, I like this better, I'm in Christ. I am in Christ. And so I'm created in his image and his likeness and who I am bears and reflects who Christ is. So that's the first thing we have to know. Secondly, sex is not something gross. You may have been raised in a very fundamentalist church that said, um, sex is terrible. Sex is evil. Sex is gross. It's a bad thing. And so you ask your mom, mom, how did I get here? (laughs) And your mom says, well, uh, I'm not sure how to answer that question because I can't tell you that sex is good. We would say, no, according to scripture, number two, sex is a sacred gift. This is a gift to be enjoyed between husband and husband. And wife. So not only is our identity rooted in creation, but so is sex. Our sexuality, contrary to the world's ideas, is not to be expressed with anyone and everyone, but only in the context of heterosexual marriage between faithful husband and faithful wife, man and woman. 
In Genesis, God brings Adam and Eve together, and we see them naked and unashamed. The world gets that order wrong. The world says, well, first get naked, and then uh, avoid the shame, and then eventually put a ring on it if it's good. But we learn, no, in God's order, in the created order, intimacy is the reward of commitment. But once we're joined together, then we're truly naked. We're truly vulnerable and exposed. And yet we have no shame because our husband or wife is committed to us and they see us as God sees us. So in Genesis, God, God institutes this sacred covenant of marriage and his command is be fruitful and multiply. How do we do that? How, do we, how are we fruitful and how do we multiply and fill the earth with other image bearers if we don't have sex? In fact, the word procreation is a really apt term, isn't it? We're continuing the work that God did in stamping his image on us by procreating, continuing to create other image bearers through this beautiful sacred gift of marriage and sex. So thirdly, marriage. Marriage itself is a sacred picture of Christ and and the church. We read that in Ephesians 5. This is a mystery, but on earth, marriage, our marriage corresponds to Christ and his bride. Think about that. Jesus is the bridegroom lover who initiates, and we, the church, are the beloved bride who responds and receives his advances. Guess what? We lose that entire picture with gay marriage. We lose that entire picture with polygamy, with polyamory, with any other idea the world promotes as trending. Okay, marriage is not just two consenting adults who happen to love one another and save a little bit on rent. No, God intends marriage to display the exclusive covenantal love that he has for his redeemed. You see, it's a love that's demonstrated and kept by the sacrifice of his only son, Jesus Christ. We know on the cross that Jesus gave himself up for his bride, the church. He paid for her sins. He endures the punishment of God's wrath. He who knew no sin became sin. And he underwent the punishment that she deserved. He suffered and died in her place so that three days later he could grant her resurrection life with himself. He never forsakes her or leaves her. He sanctifies her. He cleanses her. He washes her with the water of his word. He treats her as his own body. He receives her back to himself as more radiant and beautiful than when he first paid that dowry of his own blood to purchase her from sin and death. And so by repentance and faith, we we enter into, as sinners, we enter into this covenantal bond of forgiveness and love and eternal life and fellowship with God. In fact, one person said it this way, the existence of heterosexual marriage in every age, in every culture, is a common grace indication of a profound love that all humanity must embrace. That is the love of God through Jesus Christ for wayward sinners. And that brings us to our final point this morning. And that is the bad news. And that is that the curse of sin has corrupted, has marred our identity and our sexuality. And that's why we don't get up and say, we affirm the lifestyles that have been laid out in 1 Corinthians 6. And we just kind of sweep those under the rug and, and tweak the Greek. No, that's why we need to be washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. We were depraved, fallen, bound in our sins. Such were all of you. But Christ took our place. Christ took our sin. He took the place of condemnation that I deserve, that you deserve. And Christ wore our sentence. He wore our shame. He wore our guilt. Praise be to God for this glorious gift. Amen? This morning, if you have a past of sexual immorality or abuse or brokenness in a, in a church gathering this size, There are certainly some who have sinned against others sexually or you've been sinned against in this way. I want to remind you of the cleansing power of the blood of Christ. What happens when many women are raped is that they will immediately take a shower. Why is that? That's because there's a desire to have a physical experience of washing the germs and the stain from their bodies. And this morning, the power of the gospel cleanses us from all sin. In fact, Peter in Acts 15 was recounting at the Jerusalem Council the work God had done among the Gentiles. And he said that God, quote, cleansed their hearts by faith. That's what the gospel does. It cleanses us. 1 John 1, 7, hear these words. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 
In fact, Spurgeon said it this way, there may be some sins of which man cannot speak, but there is no sin which the blood of Christ cannot wash away. So this morning, sinner, come and receive the forgiveness, the freedom, and the hope this morning that's found through the cleansing power of Christ's blood. This morning, leave that sin uh, in the past. Maybe you're a Christian and you've been walking in unrepentant sin. Maybe it's sexual sin. Maybe it's some of these things we talked about. Or maybe any sin as a practice apart from repentance. I admonish you today to reckon the old man dead and to put your sin to death. Uh, to judge yourselves whether you're of the faith. If you continue in these things, I would challenge you. You, you may not be a believer after all. But I implore you to repent. To, to put your life completely upon the finished work of Christ and to plead the merits of his blood. If you're not a Christian this morning, I don't want to give you some seeker-sensitive nonsense and say, it's okay, you're on a journey, we'll see where you're at. The scripture declares you will not inherit the kingdom of God. The scripture declares today that unless you're born again, born again you will have the wrath of God abiding on you. And so I love you. I don't want to see you continue in darkness to stand before a holy God and to have your sins condemn you. I implore you today, turn from your sin. Trust Christ this morning. Go from darkness to light and receive his righteousness by faith. Listen, church, we today are preaching a message with many thousands of other churches uh, in the midst of a dark and depraved generation. But we stand on the truth of God, not, not angry and hostile, but filled with the hope of the gospel, filled with love of God, love of neighbor, desiring to see those who are bound up in their sin be set free because we've been set free. We desire to go into the world and make disciples of all the nations, not because we're snarky and have a better perspective, but because we have light and truth. And that is the hope of the world. It's what Christ has done. It's not us trying to be better. It's the fact that he has saved us. He has justified us. And so as we approach a world, we're going to close today uh, singing this hymn together. Listen to these words that remind us of what the world is doing against us and what our stance is. This hymn that's been sung for generations and centuries says, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, and it is, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together, and we're going to pray. Lord, this morning I have my Bible in my hand reminding myself that this is your word, this is the foundation. The world would mock this, would minimize this, would caricature this, would say that's myth, it's folklore, it's tradition, it's irrelevant, it's outdated. And yet, Lord, we see your living word continue today to work in our hearts. Lord, we see it's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, it judges the attitudes and the intentions of the heart. And Lord, we are admonished throughout Scripture to preach the word, to be instant in season and out of season. And so, Lord, we pray for our fellow believers in Canada today and throughout the next generation who need to stand upon your word. May they not stand upon politics or personal perspective. May they not stand just in church tradition. May they stand on your word. Lord, give them great boldness. And Lord, we pray for us this morning. If there's anyone here who is is looking back at a life of sexual brokenness, whether sin or sinned against. Lord, would you bring forgiveness and healing through the cleansing power of your blood? Lord, for all of us, that we would turn from our sin, reckon the old man dead, and that we'd walk in victory today. Lord, we thank you that such were some of us, but, Lord, you intervened. Thank you for your salvation. Thank you for your cleansing power. Lord, we join with the church around the world today to stand with boldness, as we declare a mighty fortress is our God. And Lord, we will do that till our dying breath, trusting alone in your finished work. We thank you, Lord, and all who agree said amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 1030 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. 
God bless you.